Well, today we are going to talk about what will happen when Christ returns. And we're going to answer questions such as when will Jesus return? What will happen before the return of Christ? What will happen at the return of Christ? Can Christ come back at any time? And what are four different views of the millennium, which is the thousand year reign? So when we talk about something like this, about the last days, the end times, it's known as eschatology. That's the actual theological word. And these are the category of persuasion level beliefs. So there are different denominations that will hold different persuasions. Sometimes even pastors in the same denomination might have a different persuasion. So you can't even categorize all Baptists believe this or all Presbyterians believe this. So this is something today, it's just to enlighten you, inform you about these views. And again, they are gonna come from Grudem's view in his systematic theology book. So I will be representing him, not Holly or Holly's church, but just what Grudem says. And to just realize Christians differ on when Christ will return. Christians differ on what happens in the millennium, who's at the millennium in that thousand year reign. Christians differ over details leading up to and immediately following Christ's return. They differ over, is Christ going to be with us in the millennium or not? And then even differ on the great tribulation. Are we a part of the great tribulation or not? So there's a lot of places where we could disagree, but in the end, I'm going to show you where we all agree. Okay. So in the end, we're going to end in unity. This is where we all are united about the end times. So let me pray for us and then we will dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the book of Revelation and other epistles that guide us on thinking about your return, about what it will be like when you come to reign, to defeat Satan, to have a final judgment, Lord. And Lord, though some of this might still feel fuzzy after today or even confusing, we thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit to guide us to learn, to consider. You've given us a mind to think about these things. But Lord, I also pray that we would be gracious toward one another um, as we have been maybe trained under one thought process and maybe Grudem will propose another thought process. That's fine. And we could still leave at the end of the day being united in Christ, knowing that one day you will return, you will reign and justice will happen and Satan will be defeated. And so Lord, may we just come together as we learn this and have a better understanding instead of saying, hey, I don't need to know this, this is not important. Let us still learn about it today, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. So let me start with this question. Why do you think this is still an important for us to study and consider, especially since there's different views and we don't know for certain what will happen? It wraps up everything that's in the Bible. This is the grand finale of the Bible. So we don't want to ignore it. And even the things we don't understand, there are many things we can celebrate and look forward to and be excited about. And it helps us to reduce fear in our life. No matter which view you end up having, it will help you to trust God, to worship him more and to share your faith more. So so this is why we want to, to discuss this. But we need to remember, again, it's not a salvation issue. We also want to keep discussing it because over time, as theologians st- study more and more, we can come to greater unity. It's not meant to always say, well, we will always be divided. But as theologians come together and as more information is revealed in each generation, 
we can hope for more unity on this topic, but we won't have it if we don't keep talking about it in respectful ways to one another. We also do want to remember he can come back at any moment. And so are we ready to meet him face to face? Are we ready to say, I want to see you come Lord Jesus come. And then have we cared enough about the people around us to prepare them that Jesus might be coming back. So when will Jesus return? Well, when Jesus was on earth, he said he did not know the time that he would come back. But now he is seated at the right hand of the Father and he does know all things and he does know exactly when he will return now. No one on earth though knows when Jesus will return. Matthew 24, 44 says that the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And Mark 13, 32 says, watch therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour. And then he goes on to say that not even the angels in heaven know when Christ will return. So anyone that you come across that claims they know the actual date on which Christ will return should be rejected as false teaching. Always reject that as false teaching. So let me ask you this. What is the danger of people putting a prediction on Jesus's coming? Why would that be dangerous? Why would we put that under false teaching? So if Jesus said, we are not going to know the time, then we're going to trust what Jesus said and not what a person says when they say they now know the time. It has been revealed to them that they know the time because Jesus himself said, we do not know the time. So then the question is, can Christ come back at any time? And there are at least 18 passages encouraging us to be ready at any time for Christ's return. The texts do not say how long we will have to wait. Jesus said that he is coming soon, but soon to Jesus we know is relative, right? With the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. So we also know though that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. That's 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But there are other passages stating that certain events will happen before he returns. And so we are going to list six of them so you can know clearly what are six clear events written in scripture that must happen before Jesus said he would return. And what you're going to see as I present these to you is that it's not always so clear have these for sure already happened because each generation might think that they have already happened and we are not always sure are we still waiting for more to come. The first one is the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations and then the end will come. That is found in Mark 13, 10. Now there are approximately 8 billion people on the earth right now. And what we know is about 3.2 billion are still considered unreached or least reached people of the 8 billion. More than 7,000 groups of people are classified as unreached as of now. That's people groups. But Colossians 1, 5 and 6 says, The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. So Colossians seems to imply the gospel made it to the whole world, at least in that time. It also says in Colossians 1, 23, The gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So This may not mean every single person has heard the gospel, but it might mean every nation has heard the gospel. So we could debate if the whole world has heard the gospel or not, even in the first century. 
Currently, there is most likely at least one Christian in every single nation in the world, even countries that claim to be 100% Muslim. I saw that when I was in the country of Yemen. 100% Muslim saw a girl come to Christ. So we do know even in some of the most prohibitive countries, there are Christians. Second, here's the second thing that will happen. There will be the great tribulation, Mark 13, 19 through 20. This means wars and rumors of wars. Think of our world right now, North Korea, Russia, Ukraine, Gaza, Israel. And Jesus says not to be alarmed, that this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nations will rise against nations. There will be earthquakes, there will be famines, but these are the beginning, he says. You can find these in Mark 13, 7 and 8, Matthew 24, 15 through 22, and Luke 21, 20 through 24. So maybe this hasn't happened yet, but some people even considered the Roman siege of Jerusalem in the Jewish war of 66 AD as the great tribulation. So you can see that even way back then, people thought the great tribulation was happening. Christians also have been persecuted greatly in the former Soviet Union, in China, in North Korea, and in Muslim countries. And those Christians might consider their lives being a part of the tribulation because they became martyrs, right? And so in their view, in a different country, it could look like they're going through the great tribulation, whereas we in America do not feel the effects of a great tribulation. Number three, there will be false prophets and even false Christs who will perform signs and wonders to lead even believers astray, which is Mark 13, 22. And this can be seen in countries where there is witchcraft and demonic activity, and there are demonic miracles being done. And this has happened century after century after century, and people get deceived. The fourth one is after the tribulation, it says the sun will be darkened, the moon will have no light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. That is Mark 13, 24 and 25. This sign has almost certainly not occurred yet. There have been eclipses of the sun and the moon and comets, but nonetheless, this sign can happen very quickly in a matter of minutes or in an hour or two and then be followed by the return of Christ. So it still can just happen quite quickly. Number five, rebellion will come before the coming of Christ. The man of lawlessness, the beast in Revelation 13, or the Antichrist, will be revealed. He will oppose every other god, and he will sit in the temple of God claiming to be God. This is 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. It literally says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So many people have tried to identify who is this man of lawlessness or the Antichrist in history. It could have been Roman emperors like Nero. It could have been people that demanded deity and demanded to be worshiped. Others have said, what about Hitler or Stalin? But all of those have proven to be false so far. And so it's unlikely that this one has occurred yet. And then finally, number six, he also claims all of Israel will be saved in Romans 11:25 25 through 26 before Christ's return. 
Romans 9 through 11 most likely indicates that there will be a yet further massive ingathering of the Jewish people as they turn to accept Christ as their Messiah. Some people do not think this will occur, but instead believe that the Jews who have joined the church are in this category. So people have two different views on how this will be fulfilled. So it's spiritually for un unhealthy for us to say that we know that these signs have not occurred, but it's also a stretch to say that we know that these signs have occurred. It's kind of like we just, we don't really know for sure. So we should say we don't know for certain if these events have occurred. There are signs that it could be happening, but previous generations have also thought they saw the signs, right? Christ could return at any time since we can't be certain that the signs have not been fulfilled to some extent. So we must be ready, even though it's unlikely that Christ might return immediately because there are some signs that seem like need to still be fulfilled. Jesus, he warns us in Luke 21, 28. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And then he warns us in Mark 13, 33, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will be. These signs are given to intensify our expectations of Christ's return. We, with each successive wave of events, we do not know which one will be the last. These signs are also given so Christians aren't surprised by miraculous events and following a false Christ. The signs are never given to make us think, well, Jesus couldn't come for another few years. So those are the six signs you're looking for and trying to understand and interpret in our current age. So now we're going to talk about a few different views. And the first one is maybe one you may have never heard of. It's called the Preterist view, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T, Preterist view. This view actually declares that Christ already returned in 70 AD when the Jerusalem temple was destroyed. So they see this as in the past. What they do is they interpret Matthew 24, 34, literally when Jesus said he would return during the lifetime of their generation. They believe all eschatological events or end time events came to pass within the lifetime of Jesus's contemporaries, the apostles, including his return. They believe he came back invisible to bring judgment on the Jewish temple and the Jewish religious system. And so they don't expect a second coming of Christ. Matthew 24, 34 could be understood to mean the generation that sees the signs of Christ, though, such as the great tribulation and the stars falling from heaven. Also, it's, it says, so also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. So it's telling people more to just be ready for his return, not that he has returned. This view also ignores certain things that must take place for Christ's return that did not occur in 70 AD. Also, Jesus will be physically seen at his return. Revelation 1-7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierce him and all of the tribes on the earth will wail on account of him. So Grudem's rebuttal is people will see Christ when he returns. So let's talk about, well, what will happen at the return of Christ? Well, there will be a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Christ. 
Immediately after Jesus ascended into heaven, the two angels said to the disciples, this Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's Acts 1.11. And then Paul taught this. He said, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 6. This will not be a quiet entry into the world. Revelation 1, 7 says, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. This will include non-believers. Hebrews 9, 28 says that Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So this might allude to him coming possibly before the millennium, the thousand year reign, which we will talk more about. But I want to focus on one passage where most of the debate comes from. If there's one place where people get their theology, it's Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6. This is what you would want to read over again after this time and try to assess for yourself what would be your theological views. So I'm going to read that to you. Revelation 20, 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life, until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So this is the passage where different groups will interpret different things. The debate is mainly around the thousand-year reign that John mentions in verse 4 and 5, which again is the millennium. And there are four views of this time period. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at each view, why they hold that view, and then Grudem's going to assess what might be some questionable things in each view so that we can assess how it's interpreted from people that believe it and don't believe it. And so we're going to start with that amillennial view. A millennial view. A millennialism believes that the millennium is right now, and when it ends, Jesus will return. They believe Revelation 20 is the present church age. They see Revelation 20 as a long period of time, not a literal thousand years. They believe Satan is actually already bound and cannot deceive the nations anymore. They believe Satan was bound during Jesus's earthly ministry because Jesus mentioned binding the strong man in order that he may plunder his house. That's how they interpret Matthew 12, 29. 
But the rebuttal is Revelation 20 states that Satan is sealed into a pit. And so he should have total removal from influence on the earth, which we do not see right now. He still prowls around like a roaring lion. And the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers and is keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel. That's literally 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. We are still fighting spiritual forces to today, according to Ephesians 6.12. And 1 John 5.19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So their view that Satan is bound might not fit with other scriptures that we read. Since John states that he actually sees souls and not bodies, the amillennial view believes he's actually looking into heaven. They interpret, quote, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years to mean Christians who have already died are today reigning with Christ right now in a spiritual sense in heaven, not having received their glorified bodies yet. So they see the first resurrection as actually going to heaven in your immediate state. So any of us that die and go to heaven would be what they see as the first resurrection because you're actually going to heaven. In questioning this view, Revelation 20 verse 1 seems to show that these events are on earth since the angel actually came down from heaven. So these events are not happening in the celestial kingdom of heaven. These are happening on earth. Also, nowhere in scripture does resurrection mean going to heaven. It doesn't say resurrection means that you're going to heaven or going to God in an intermediate state. But rather, resurrection always means a bodily resurrection. Your body will be resurrected, and then you will receive a glorified body. The amillennial view believes that when Christ returns physically, there will be a resurrection of believers and unbelievers at the same time. This view holds to the idea of just one resurrection, which can be interpreted in scriptures like John 5, 28, 29, Acts 24, 15, and Daniel 12, 2. But a different perspective that Greedham wants to propose is that these verses do not exclude the idea that there could actually be two separate resurrections. They are just stating that both the saved and the unsaved will be resurrected at some point. But are the saved and the unsaved resurrected at the exact same time? Other views hold that since this passage mentions a first resurrection, there might be a second resurrection. And those in the first resurrection are blessed and the others are still dead. Jesus alludes to this in John 5, 28 and 29, which says this, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This could imply two phases of resurrections. We don't know. The amillennial view believes that after the resurrection, the new heaven and new earth will begin. It is a simple view that says Christ returns, judgment takes place, and we will live in the new heaven and new earth forever. So it is called amillennial because it maintains that there's no future millennium yet to come. They believe that all the major events yet to come before the eternal state will happen all at once. Christ will return. There will be one resurrection of believers and non-believers. The final judgment will happen. New heaven and earth will be established. And they will enter immediately into an eternal state with no millennium. The amillennial view sees no purpose for the millennium. Once the church age has ended and Christ has returned, then why delay starting the eternal state? 
they question the millennium because it is only mentioned in one verse. But that doesn't mean it's not true or won't happen. And then they can't really explain Revelation 20 in a satisfactory way. So that is the amillennial view. Not very popular. Postmillennialism. Post means after, right? So according to this view, Christ will return after the millennium. Postmillennialism is embraced in times of great revival, absence of war or internal conflict, and progress is being made overcoming the evil in the world. So the postmillennial view believes the millennium will come gradually as the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church gradually increases. They believe this is because Christ has all authority and Jesus is with us to fulfill the Great Commission. Parables of the gradual growth of the kingdom indicate that it will eventually fill the earth with influence. That would be Matthew 13, 31 through 33. So they're seeing it as progressive. It's just going to happen over time. The world's going to become a better place, a utopia. A rebuttal to this is that although the kingdom of God will grow, it doesn't say in the Bible to what extent. Nowhere does Jesus's authority mean the majority of people will be saved. We know that the road to heaven is narrow, according to Matthew 7, 13. It's a huge assumption that there will be worldwide Christianization. They believe the earth is becoming more Christian, and they give an example like China and how there's been so much growth in the past decade, or how Muslims are now seeing visions of Christ, and so they're coming to Christ. And so look, it must be that the earth is becoming more Christian. But as we look at the world, we can also see that it is becoming more evil. Think of human trafficking, abortion, corruption, and the like. In Luke 18, 8, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Which seems to allude to less faith, not more faith on the earth. Also, Timothy says in the last days, there will come times of difficulty because people will be lovers of themselves, of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, brutal. And that's in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Even in places where Christians are a larger segment of the population, nothing is going to be like the millennial kingdom. So it's not like, wow, where are this Christian world? In the post-millennial view, the millennial age is not literally a thousand years. It will be time of great peace and righteousness due to the high influence of Christians. So there's peace and righteousness because of the high influence of Christians. Society will function more according to God's standards, not worldly standards. Christ will not physically be on earth during this time, but Christians will have great influence on society. So how post-millennials view the millennium is vastly different than how pre-millennials view it, which is what we're going to talk about next. Pre-millennials believe Christ is physically present, but post-millennials just focus on the large number of Christians that are influencing the earth. So they have a different view of what the nature of the millennium will entail. Finally, the post-millennial view that Jesus will return at the end of the age, however long that is, and there will be a resurrection together of believers and unbelievers with judgment. Then the new heaven and new earth will begin, and Christ will then be present on earth in bodily form. So that's how they see the progression of events. Now, pre-millennial. Pre means before. So they believe Christ will come back before the tribulation. This view has a long history from the earliest centuries onward. 
In the premillennial view, the millennium will come suddenly and Jesus will return before the millennium. Prior to Jesus' return, there will be great suffering on the earth, which is called the Great Tribulation. So in their view, in a premillennial view, Christians will experience the tribulation. Matthew 24, 29 through 30. The premillennial view believes that when Christ returns, all who believe in him will be raised from the dead and given their glorified bodies to reign with him. They will meet him in the clouds. They won't go all the way to heaven. They will meet him in the clouds, receive their glorified bodies, and then come back to earth to reign with him for a thousand years. Now, interesting. Picture that. Jesus is on earth. We have glorified bodies, but there are still unbelievers on the earth. Okay? And they are seeing Jesus reign. They are seeing our glorified body. But yet... There will still be sin and evil during this time because they still have deceitful hearts. Even when Satan is bound for that thousand years, there will still be sin in the millennium because there will still be non-believers and we can sin on our own without Satan. Now, some of the other views wonder, well, how could believers in a glorified body interact with sinners during the millennium? Well, a rebuttal is Jesus was resurrected with his glorified body and he was still around non-believers in Matthew 27, 53. So Jesus has already been to earth with a glorified body and was around the non-believers. Another question people might have is if Christ came to reign on earth during the millennium with non-believers present, how can some people still persist in sin and still rebel to fight against him when Satan is released? So a rebuttal is think about Judas of Iscariot. He was in close proximity to Jesus for three years, and yet he still rebelled against him. Even the disciples, after seeing the glorified Lord, they doubted. There can still be persistent unbelief in the presence of God. We saw that when Jesus was here the first time. So this shows how the millennium is part of God still gradually revealing his glory over time. And he's giving these non-believers even a further chance. Look, you didn't believe my, my, my followers. Look, I'm here now. I am back. I am showing you a glorified body. Will you still rebel against me? Will you still not believe? The millennium is an amazing time of grace and revelation to the non-believer. And will they accept it or not? So during the millennium, Satan and his demons will be removed from influencing the earth. This will show that even without Satan and even in a better environment, sin is still in the hearts of mankind and there will still be non-believers in sin. In the premillennial view, Christ will physically reign on earth for a thousand years. Again, maybe not a literally a thousand years. Some say literal, some say not. But because Jesus will reign over the earth in peace and righteousness, we do know many people on earth will turn to him for salvation. He will be a good leader, a perfect leader. And so many people will turn to him for salvation. Many premillennialists believe there are verses that allude to a future period that is far greater than the present age, but still falls short of the eternal state. And that's what they think the millennia is. So I'm going to show you some verses that sometimes you might think, oh, we, that was, I thought, in the new heaven and new earth.
But premillennialists propose, this is in the, the thousand year reign. So let's look at this, Isaiah 11, two through nine. You've heard this, but you ever thought about where this happens in the timeline of eternity? Isaiah 11 says that the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the child can play by the hole of a cobra. So it's showing that something in the millennial reign has changed, right? Changed with the animals, changed with their interaction with one another. But the passage continues that in that day, the Lord will extend his hand to recover the remnant so that there are still unsaved people on the earth. So what you see in that whole passage of Isaiah is the lion and the lamb are together, but Jesus is still saving people during that time. So it can't be the eternal state of the full new heaven and new earth. Another example, Psalm 72, 8 through 14. It says that Jesus will have dominion over the whole earth, but yet it says there are weak and needy among him that still need to be rescued. It says that there will still be enemies that lick the dust. And so all of this speaks of an age far different than this one, but still short of that eternal perfect state when everything is made new and there is no more sin and suffering. And then finally, Revelation 2.27 says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Why would we need to do that if there weren't non-believers on the earth to have to rule with a rod of iron? So this shows that we as believers will actually rule in the millennial kingdom over rebellious people. And so this fits well into a future millennial kingdom when glorified saints rule with Christ on earth, but it does not fit in with our present time or the eternal state. And so that's why they think some of these verses are alluding to the millennial. Isaiah 65, 20 says, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. No baby's going to die. Wow. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. He will live till he is old. For the young man shall die at a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. This shows a time, again, where infants aren't going to die. We're going to live a longer life. We're not going to die prematurely. That's different from the current age. That's giving them a lot of grace. Wow, you're going to live at least 100 years to see Jesus reign, to be able to receive him. Grace upon grace upon grace, right? But death and sin will still be present. These passages portray that idea in the millennium. Premillennialists believe that after the millennium, Satan will be loosened from that pit, he will join forces with those unbelievers that were still alive during the millennium. It's not like dead, dead unbelievers are coming up, right? It's the people that are still alive on the earth are going to join forces to battle Christ, but we know that he will be defeated. Christ will then rise from the dead, the unbelievers, and the final judgment will occur. Those who believe in Jesus will continue to reign with him, and those who reject him will be condemned for all eternity and then the eternal state will begin. So this position would be more of what Grudem's position would be. But there's a fourth one that is very popular that we need to talk about. And it's, it is a premillennial view, but slightly different. It's called pre-tribulational premillennial view, or what you might hear called dispensational premillennialism. 
Nice big words for you. Dispensationalists, right? So if someone says, are you a dispensationalist? You're going to know what they're talking about after this. This is called the pre-trib rapture view. That might make a little more sense to you because we haven't really talked about the rapture yet. This actually became popular in the 19th and 20th centuries, but especially in the UK and the US. They would begin to believe that Christ will return twice. So once in a secret return to suddenly take Christians out of the world before the millennium, and then after the great tribulation, he will turn. So this view would be people that think Christians may not experience the great tribulation. They're going to be saved from it. And then after the great tribulation, they're going to come back with Christ and reign for the thousand years. Okay. So some Christians believe you're going to experience the tribulation. Some do not. You think about what happened to the Israelites when they were in Egypt and how when the plagues came, there was great judgment on the Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but yet a lot of the plagues didn't touch the Israelites. So I think that's a good thought when we think of could Christians be here in the tribulation, we would not be experiencing the wrath of God. We might still experience consequences of sin of others, but we have seen through scripture that God can still put wrath on people and protect his followers from plagues, from judgment, from wrath. So it could still be possible that we're part of the great tribulation, but here a, a dispensationalist would say, no, we're going to be raptured up and we will not experience the tribulation. And that's okay if you, if that's the, the persuasion you or your church has. So th what would happen in this view is this would be a sudden, unexpected and secret return of Christ. And he would call all believers to himself. And that is what people call the rapture. Christ will then return to heaven with the believers who have been removed from the earth. So this is not resurrecting the believers that have died right? We're just picturing people that are currently on earth are now being brought to heaven. Okay. We just got to be clarified because there's the whole church, right? And church means people in all the other generations. So it's just the physical people who are still alive will be raptured. Now the challenge Grudem says with this view is that there are no passages that talk about the secret return of Christ unless you give certain parables. He says it's always mentioned as something visible. Christ's return will be visible like first Thessalonians 4 16. There's no New Testament verse that clearly says that the church will be taken out of the world before the tribulation. But 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says that we will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Corinthians 15.51 says we shall be changed in a twinkling of an eye and receive resurrected bodies. And this has been understood over the years to mean a visible rapture to be with Christ for maybe only a few moments in the air, maybe not all the way to heaven before he comes to earth to reign during the millennial kingdom. But in the pre-tribulation, pre-millennial view, after Christians, the, their view is they're raptured and they ascend to heaven with Christ, there will be this great tribulation on earth for seven years. They don't believe it would be appropriate for Christians to be on the earth at this time and experience God's wrath. And they hold to Revelation 3.10, which Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So that one verse does sound pretty convincing if you don't want to be a part of the tribulation. You know, it's like, okay, he's going to keep me from that hour. In a rebuttal to this, it might not be strong enough evidence that all the Christians will be raptured. The statement was made to one specific church, and could have applied to the suffering for that church, the church of Philadelphia, it might not have meant for all Christians during the end times. 
And may maybe it means more that they are being guarded and protected, not necessarily taken up. So Christians can be present on earth and protected from God's wrath. So also the tribulation is quite clearly linked with the Lord's return. When you look at tribulation and the Lord's return, Matthew 24, 30, 31, and 1 Corinthians 15, 51 show Christ returns at the end of the tribulation. So pre-tribulation, pre-millennials believe many of the signs to predict Christ's return will happen in those seven years of tribulation. So are we in the time of tribulation now? I don't know. They believe many Jewish people will put their trust in Christ during that time. The church will be taken to heaven and Israel will constitute the people of God on earth during the tribulation. Grudem's defense of that would say that the New Testament does not support a distinction between Israel and the church. So he's not one that, dis that shows a distinction. Other people like to show a distinction and that's fine. Pre-tribulation, pre-millennials believe that seven years later in a second public return, Christ will bring Christians back to earth to reign with him for a thousand years. So Grudem would propose the New Testament does not seem to justify the idea of two separate returns, Christ coming to rapture us and then Christ coming back for the millennium. He would say he doesn't see that. But after the thousand year reign, what a, what a pre-trib, pre-millennial view would say is Satan will be released. The final battle will happen. Satan will be defeated. Non-believers will be resurrected. Final judgment will occur. And then we begin our eternal state. So that's the exact same as the previous one. This is, view is held almost exclusively among dispensationalists who wish to maintain a clear distinction between church and Israel. Normally, the biggest thing is, do we want to combine the church and Israel or do we want to keep them separate? And this helps keep the view separate. So if that's your value, this would be more of an end times view for you. And this is because the church would be taken out of the world before a widespread conversion of Jews. So let's talk about where all the views agree, because though they all hold different things, might feel really confusing. Let's hold on to what we can all agree on. We can agree that Satan will be released from prison and he will gather an army for battle. The final victory we know will be Christ over Satan, according to Revelation 20, verse 7. At the end of Satan's defeat, he will be thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur, where he will be tormented day and night forever. After that, Jesus will execute the final judgment, and then he will reign with his people forever in a new heaven and a new earth. No matter which view seems more biblical, it will happen when it happens, just as Jesus wants it to, and we can be secure in that. So anything that happens before that, there might be different views, and that is okay. So what should our response be in light of all this? Well, we should eagerly long for Christ's return. Titus 2, 12 and 13 says, Live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3.20 that we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, do Christians eagerly long for Christ's return? If one is enjoying the world too much and not in a daily deep personal relationship with Christ, one will not long for his return. It is those who experience suffering and hardship that long for his return today. 
To some extent, the degree to which we actually long for Christ's return is a measure of the spiritual condition of our lives in this moment. Our response to this should be as stated in Revelation 22, 20, when John heard Christ say, surely I am coming soon. And here was John's response. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That is our heart. That is where we are united. We all want Jesus to return. And we know that there will be a final judgment. And so we want to share the gospel with others. Everything else in between is persuasion level. And it should never divide the church. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that as we try to understand your word and assess what is the millennium and when is your judgment and are you turning once or twice and is there a rapture or is there not? Jesus, we just know that you love us, that we are yours forever, that we will get to reign with you one day and be with you one day and have glorified bodies one day and justice will happen and evil will be eradicated and Satan will be condemned. And we thank you, Jesus, for that. And we cannot wait for a day when everything will be perfect and we will get to be with you face to face. And so we say, as John says, come, Lord Jesus, come. In your wonderful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.